Okay, we're uh, continuing our study in Revelation. Uh, if you didn't get a handout for chapters 3 and 4, we had some more made up. If you need one, raise your hand. If not, uh, chapter <clears throat> chapters 2 and 3, we have uh, the Lord tells John to write uh, what he says to the seven churches of Asia. Uh, as we mentioned last week, those, didn't, those seven churches weren't all the churches in, a, the, all the congregations in Asia. Uh, there was co a congregation that we know of in uh, uh, Troas, and one in Colossae, and one in Hierapolis. Hierapolis. I'm not sure about the spelling or pronunciation. So um, that leads some credence to the thought that when Jesus is... Um, addressing these things in the congregation that he's looking beyond uh, just what's in those local congregations. And as we go through chapters two and three, as we said, as he ends each one, he'll say, um, and he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says uh, to the churches. So he intended for, uh, it seems like he intended for all the churches to have this message and of course, as we've talked before in other class, uh, classes, as these things, information was given, uh, it was distributed among other congregations of the Lord's people. So tonight we're going to look at, at uh, Sardis. And Sardis is, is uh, sometimes it's known as the church that was dead or alive. Uh, I sometimes say it was the church of the walking dead. Um, Sardis was one of the oldest and most important cities of Asian Minor. And until 549 BC, it was the capital of the kingdom of Lydia. And it stood on the slope of Mount Timolus. And it's Acropolis, and, and that's its citadel or fortified, fortified part of the city, uh, occupied one of the spurs of the mountain. And so, in other words, it, it was in a position that made, just by the very position of it, uh, it offered it some protection from. Um, uh, from attacking armies. And the, uh, and it was in uh, 549 BC that because uh, that they were so much like, um, did you ever see that movie, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusades? Uh, if you've seen that movie, you remember the scene where Indiana Jones and his father, is, they're riding horses through these, these really deep crevasses, and, and, they, and it opens up, and they come up to the, where this, uh, this, this temple is actually carved into the side of a mountain. Uh, well, that was uh, Edom, Seir, uh, Petra is what it's known as. And so much like they thought they were, you know, uh, could never be undefeatable because of their location, uh, Sardis was like that too. And so they weren't very watchful. And in 549 BC, they were under attacks by the Medians. And one of the Median soldiers happened to see one of the, the soldiers from Sardis had dropped his helmet or something and saw him coming down some steps on the backside of, of like this cliff. And so that alerted him to the fact that there was another way into the city, and they followed that uh, city into the capital and was able to defeat it. Uh, the ancient city was noted for its fruits and wools. It was the temple of the goddess Sybil, 
Uh, we probably more uh, would know it more, know her more as the goddess of Diana. Her, the worship uh, for Sybil was uh, similar to that. Uh, its wealth was partly due to the gold which was found in the sand of the river Pactolus, and they were known for coins that they struck. And, and even uh, up until modern times, as farmers tilled the ground and things, uh, they would find these coins uh, in the fields and things. Uh, let's see, the city fell into uh, overconfidence, and as we read through the account, we'll see the church is pretty much in the same situation. Uh, so we'll begin in chapter 3, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Sardis write, uh, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Did we talk last week about that phrase, these things says he? <clears throat> that phrase is a figure of speech, uh, and it's used in the Septuagint like 340 times. And 300, about 320 of those times, that, that figure of speech is used uh, in, the, in, in, a, in conjunction with the Lord. In other words, these things say the Lord. And so one translation translated this phrase, the solemn pronouncement of, as the text says, of he who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. In other words, this is God speaking to them. This is a message from God. And so he says, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. You remember when Samuel, did we talk about this? Okay. I'm teaching this on Monday mornings too, so I'm not sure what we've talked about or not. If I've talked about something we've already talked about, just let me know. But you remember when Samuel, when God told Samuel to go anoint David? You remember he, uh, Samuel had, had David's dad, Jesse, gather all his sons. And Samuel went, no, it's not this one, not this one, not this one, not this one, not this one. And then what Samuel say to Jesse? You got any more sons? And he said they had one that was out in the field. And who was it? It was David. You remember what God said about that to Samuel? He looks at the inward man and not the outward. In other words, God looks at, he sees things differently than you and I would. You know, if we were going to pick a king, we'd probably pick a guy like Saul, wouldn't we? guy that's head and shoulders above everybody else, a handsome guy. I remember years ago, I was doing a study on elections for some reason or reading an article about it, that if you go back over history that the person that's selected president is usually taller than their candidate and in the minds of some better looking. And so we tend to think, you know, we want a tall guy, we want that tall, dark, and handsome, you know, that phrase. And so, but God doesn't look at our outside, does he? And so here God, looking at Sardis, said, you know, everybody around you says you're alive, but I know you're dead. Boy, that would hit home, wouldn't it? That would hit home. I know, your work, or be, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive but are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Be watchful. Do you think they would have, that would have hit home with them? Because the city had been defeated because they weren't watchful. You better be watchful. 
And he, what's he say about their works? Strengthen the things which remain. Well, what are those things? We don't, we're not told. Could be a person, could be a work they're doing, it could be some beliefs or whatever. He just says, strengthen the things which remain uh, that are about to die. But notice what he says about their works. I have not found your works perfect before God. When we think about perfect, what do we think? Well, in, in this context, we think about works, perfect works. What do we think? Complete, okay, that's probably the idea. When we think about perfect, we think of something without flaw, don't we? Or something that is not perfected, you know? She perfected that recipe for homemade bread. What does that mean? She worked with it, worked with it until it was exactly what she wanted, you know, to do that. So we understand perfect in some sense, we use it as, it, it, it's, it's like you say, well, she's a perfect wife. And we would think, well, she, you know, everything about her is perfect. There's nothing lacking and everything like that. Uh, but then there's the, also the idea of perfected and completed and, and it lacks nothing uh, in its, I guess, its, um, I don't know about quality, but maybe quantity. Anyway, but the thought here is that their works, they didn't complete them. In other words, I get this picture that, that, that they may have been a congregation at times that that, you know, well, here's something that we should be doing, and, and they start doing it, but they really never follow through. They never, they don't take it to its completion. And, and sometimes I think we're guilty about that in the church, don't you? Do you agree or disagree? You know, we see it, especially, it's been my experience over the years, we see something the denominations are doing. And, and it works for them, so we think, well, let's do what they're doing because they're bringing in a lot of people. Uh, I think back in the 70s, back in the 70s or 80s, uh, I think Orange Street was heavily involved in the bus ministry. Well, that didn't begin within the body of Christ. That was a denominations did that. And most congregations, I know where I was at in, in Alliance, and from what I've heard from here at Orange Street, you know, we thought, well, this is really great. We'll bring all these kids in, we'll get all their parents, and and we'll be able to spread the gospel and share the gospel with all you know, these people because of their kids and they'll follow their kids. And we found out after time, what did it end up being? Pretty much a babysitting service. You know, I can remember, and I may have told you before, I, I was just a new Christian and I drove the, the joy bus. And there'd be times you know, after Wednesday night Nine o'clock, we'd go to drop this little guy off. You know, he might be five or six and nobody's home. There's nobody at the house to, to take this little boy. Well, what do you do? I mean, we, have, we were a ready babysitter for him. And so sometimes as a, con not as a church as, in the whole and sometimes even as a congregation, we look at something and it looks real good on the surface and we think, man, we ought to do that but maybe we haven't given as much thought as we have. And that may have been the problem here in Sardis, that they had started some works, but they hadn't brought them com to completion. And it may have even been just their spiritual growth, that they weren't maturing as they should have. And so he says, remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you 
and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Well, that would again tie in with their history. You know, everything was going fine. We didn't watch, and, and the enemy crept up this unawares ways like a thief in the night, night and defeated our city. Here Jesus says, you get, need to get right. You need to repent, and if you don't, then I, I may come to you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. But then he says something about some of the members. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Typically, what do we think about anyone in a congregation where they may not, that congregation may not be what they should be? What do we tend to do about all the members? Generalize. Everybody there is against God. Everybody's turned their back on God. I remember years ago when, uh, when I was down in Port Charlotte. No, I was in Cape Coral at the time. That was before I started preaching. Um, Ted Wheeler had come back from uh, Ghana. And Ted and I had become friends, and he got to work there in Venice, where he is today. And there was one brother, Larry Jenkins, who had been there, and the congregation years before had sort of had went into um, crossroads, crossroads. And Larry stayed there and was just like a thorn in their flesh. You know, just trying to, you know, keep them, to encourage them, you know, we need to do this, we need to do what's right. And over time, those that were in crossroads left, and here's Larry with this con left with this building, which is now a faithful congregation. But I'm sure at the time, he was accused of supporting crossroads, of encouraging crossroads. And so... We must be careful when someone asks us about a congregation that if we don't know personally what's going on or have a reliable source, we must be careful. And we must be careful we don't generalize um, the whole congregation because of what the leadership is doing. Uh, about a year ago, there was a little contention between myself and the leadership of a local congregation. And when it came out to the other congregation, it caused, I've heard, a lot of turmoil in there because there were many of those that did not support what the leadership, the position that they held. Well, what if we'd have said, oh, they're all, they're all lost. They're all walking contrary to the God. And so here, and I say all that to say that Jesus says, even in the face of, of these difficulties, they seem to be alive, and Sardis, they, Sardis seems to be alive, but they're dead, that Jesus says, there's still some here whose robes are white. There's still some here that are faithful. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So we have to be careful in generalizing. 
He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. We think about white garments. What do we think about? Purity. Anything else? Pardon? In, in Africa, in Ghana at least, white is the sign of victory. And so purity, victory, holiness, all those things uh, seem to be you know, in, uh, contained in that thought. Uh, we think about Jesus when he was transfigured on the mount uh, uh, there at, um, where he was transfigured in Matthew chapter 17. Um, his robes and his face and everything became white like, fuller, like fuller's white? Is that? I forget how it was worded. But anyway, there's this whiteness here, this white, a purity. So he says, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name from the book of life. What do you think about that statement? If Jesus says, I will not blot his name to he who prevails, he who overcomes, I will not blot his name from the book of life, what does that imply? That you can be blotted, your name blot, taken away out of the Lamb's book of life. Why would we want to know that? Anybody ever say that a Christian can never do anything that would cause them to lose their position with God? That there's nothing that we could do to fall from grace? There's a lot of people that teach that, isn't it? Aren't there? But yet here Jesus, by the very fact, says that I will not, implies that he could. Forrest? Yeah, I was going to say it also speaks to how there's a doctrine of election as well, because if God picked out the Lord's mind, who was in that book, why would he put you in there? You know, exactly. Exactly. That's a good point. Both of those points. Yeah. So he says, he who overcomes, and, I, and, I, and the word that's translated overcome there, uh, I prefer prevail. He who prevails shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Well, look at Matthew chapter 10, I believe it is. And verses, uh, I think it's around verse 35. Matthew chapter 10. Hoping I remember correctly. 32. Actually, let's pick up in verse 27. He says, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in, what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. So what's Jesus talking about? Talking about sharing his message, about living for him, about just doing all those things that would, would identify us as being a disciple of Christ, and, and specifically here, uh, in, in teaching others about Christ. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore... So whatever Jesus said previously is, is somehow wrapped up 
in these next phrases. Therefore, whoever confesses me, confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. You think Jesus may be talking about those that, whose robes were still white, who were still walking with him in the face of a congregation that seemed to be alive but are dead? And he's saying, keep on keeping on. Prevail. Because I'll confess you before my Father which is in heaven. You know, I think back to Larry Jenkins. Now, there he was in the midst of, of those that were against him, against the cause of Christ, but he stood in there and prevailed in the end that that building is still housed by faithful Christians today. And sometimes we have to stand in the face of those that would turn others away from Christ. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and notice uh, verses... Uh, 17 through 19 there. Someone wants to read it. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 19. Notice that, for there must be factions among you that those who are approved or genuine, as you have the Revised Standard says, may be recognized among you. What do you think about that verse, verse 19? Here's Paul saying there must be factions among you because factions will tell you what? Who's with God and who's not with God, won't it? Anybody here ever been in the midst of a church turmoil? <laughs> Doesn't take long to figure out who's on God's side, does it? Doesn't take long to figure out who's promoting their own agenda and who's trying to do God's will. I'll tell you, factions, problems in the church will tell you very quickly who stands with God and who doesn't. And so here back in, in Revelation chapter 3, he says, he who overcomes, he who prevails, shall be clothed in white garments. I will not blot out his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his, his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Sardis had some good things, but it also had some things that needed to be straightened out. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, these things says he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Well, if you have a key, what do you have? Authority. You have authority. And that's a quote from, uh, let's see, I got that here. It's a quote from, boom, 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 boom. Uh, Isaiah 22. I think it's Isaiah 22, verse 22. Yeah, 
Look at someone read Isaiah 22, verse 22. 22, 22. Yes, sir, Isaiah. Okay, this, that, it's referring there to, in, in the house of David, in, in Judah, there was a, um, we read about in the time of Isaiah, that Eliakim was, he was like the keeper of the house. And he's the one that let people's in, open the gates, close the gates, let people in, or didn't let people in. And so he's referring to what Isaiah talked about, what he said about Eliakim here. And he says that these things says he... And, of course, the he here is Jesus, he who is holy, he who is true, and he who has the keys of David, the authority of a king. He is the king of kings, lord of lords. And he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. What does Jesus mean in that last sentence? Think about John 14, verse 6. Jesus said what? I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. He's the door. Isn't that what he said in John chapter 10? He's the door to the sheepfold. If you want to go to heaven, you've got to go through Jesus. And if you don't go through Jesus, you don't get into heaven. He's the one that opens the door. He's the one that closes the door. And so some background on Philadelphia here. Philadelphia was uh, an ancient city in Lydia. Uh, It stood about 650 feet above sea level. Uh, Its name was given to it in honor of Attalus II because of his loyalty to his elder brother, a fellow by the name of Eumenes uh, II, king of Lydia, and thus Philadelphia. And if you remember your American history, what does Philadelphia mean? City of brotherly or brotherly lo- city of lo- brotherly love. So that's all the name. Uh, let's see. The original population of Philadelphia seems to have been Macedonians. That would have been the Greeks. Uh, there was, however, uh, appears from Revelation, from the, what we're reading here in Revelation. Uh, There was a synagogue of Hellenizing Jews there as well that seemed to cause a lot of problems. Um, This area was known to be subject to constant earthquakes, which in the time of Strabo rendered even the town walls of Philadelphia unsafe. Uh, But the inhabitants wouldn't leave because um, this area was a a great wine-growing area. And, but there was this constant expense of repairing the city as these earthquakes uh, would occur and cause damage to the buildings. And so the people were under constant heavy taxes and things to repair that. And so Jesus says here, these things says he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one's open, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, 
have kept my word and have not denied my name. So Jesus sets before them an open door. The door was open to heaven to them. Why? Because they were faithful. For you have a little strength, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Well, there's some things that we learn from that. The door to heaven is open to us. If we keep Jesus' word and do not deny, or Christ's words and do not deny him. Indeed, I will make these of the, those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not. That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? Because when we think of the Jews, what's the first thing that comes to the, our minds of those, that the religious world holds? Let me reword that. When we consider what the religious world thinks about the Jews, what do they think? They're God's people, right? We had a discussion on my Tuesday night, uh, Tuesday morning class the other day about that. You know, these were God's chosen people, but yet Jesus said they're of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews but are not. Who were the true Jews? True Israel. Well, Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 tells us that the true Israel were those that had the faith that Abraham had. And so those, when Christ came, those that put their faith in Christ were the true Israel. And so, that who say they are Jews but are not, but lie, indeed I will make them come and worship before your feet to know that I have loved you. What does the ESV say there? Bow before your feet? I think that would probably be a better translation. Is that what you have? Bow? Bow? Bow down before you. I think that would be a better thought there. Not worshiping uh, the brethren at Philadelphia, but bowing in the sense of, of falling, falling prostrate before them. In other words, showing um, that you know, they're, they're greater in that line. Um, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews or not, but, uh, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship or bow down before your feet and to know that I have loved you. You know, we think when Jesus comes at the end, there's going to be a lot of people that are vindicated, aren't there? Now, you think about the things that have been said in my Tuesday class. Uh, there was a new lady there. And she said to me, she says, uh, where do you preach? And I said, I preach for the Church of Christ. She said, where at? I said, uh, Auburndale, the Orange Street Church of Christ. Where did you go to school? I told her that. She says, Church of Christ, you're legalist, aren't you? And I says, I'm not sure I know what that means. And she says, she didn't say anything, which told me she didn't know what it meant either. She just heard it. <laughs> And I said, well, I guess if you mean that we do what God wants us to do, then I guess we're legalists. And she says, well, I think we all should do that. And I says, I guess then you're a legalist too. You know, so, um, but there's going to come a time when, when the Lord comes that those that call us legalists, that those that call us water dogs, that those that call us Campbellites and any other name, a cult, that they're going to realize we're the church that Christ died for because we did what he said to do. 
and we believed what he said that he was or who he said that he was and what he expected of us. And so there's a day coming where those that have denied that and those that have gone into these various denominations, they're going to realize, hey, we messed up. And it won't bring us joy or anything, but we will be vindicated. And they would know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to, perse pers to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Verse 10 is one of those verses that gives us um, that presents an argument for the late date, some internal evidence for the late date. Those that hold the early date that Revelation was written before AD 70 say that all these things here were um, uh, occurred during the time of Nero and Nero's the 666 and all those things. But the persecution that arose from Nero was centered in, in Rome. Uh, that persecution that the Christians uh, suffered during the time of Nero was primarily due that Nero led the people to believe that the Christians had set Rome on fire when in fact it was him. But here in chapter 3 verse 10 it tells us that I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on earth. And what makes it interesting that in the Bible, the world, when it, when it talks about the whole world in the New Testament, it's talking about the Roman world. That was the world at that time, pretty much. The known world was the Roman Empire. So here's this persecution that's coming upon the whole Roman Empire, which was... More, time, more seems to be occurred uh, in the later time, in the late, at the end of the uh, first century, and then for approximately another hundred years or so uh, than what was localized during the time of Nero. So because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. Of course. Chapter 2, verse 10, Be thou faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life, the victor's crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in my temple. What did Philadelphia have? They had earthquakes. What's a pillar? Something that holds a building up. So he said, I'm going to make you a pillar. I'm going to make you a support. I'll make you a pillar in the temple, my God. He shall go out no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. So Jesus tells them he will write on him the name of my God. He'll be God's person, uh, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, and he will write on him my new name. Well, we don't know what that new name is. But Jesus is clearly identifying that you are God's people, and you will be in God's city. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. No, I don't think so. I don't think that's it. Chris, Jim was asking me if it was the name Christian that we read about. I think it's in Acts 7, is it 17, 11? No? 11, 17? Yeah. Um, where they're first called Christians, I think, in Antioch. 
Um, I don't think that that's it. I think it's just the name that we don't know uh, that Christ will give them. All right. We're bogging down a little bit. So. <laughs> All right. Thank you for any comments or questions.